This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. In medicine, health professionals have a tendency to want to keep fighting, even sometimes when it's not reasonable to continue the fight. So this is, don't ever give up. This cartoon says, "Yoo-hoo, oh yoo-hoo, I think I'm getting a blister, makes the point that this is not the sort of environment you want to work in if you're not able to deal with a lot of stress and very tough and thorny ethical issues. And this is a Larson cartoon that says, Professor Gallagher and his controversial technique of simultaneously confronting the fear of heights, snakes in the dark. <clears throat> and this is basically how physicians are trained to deal with these issues. That is, that most medical schools still don't have very good educational programs for training young people, number one, how to interrelate with people effectively and warmly, and number two, and how to deal with these very tough issues that you're confronted with day in and day out in the medical profession. <clears throat> the final one is it's, you're supposed to punch the holes before you put the puppy in the box. This is trying to make the point that uh, many of the times that when physicians are caring for patients, they do things to help the patients which result in the patient dying. In other words, there are always risks and toxicities associated with all treatment. And so if you work in this environment, you have to know that when you do things, even though it's with the best of intentions, uh, the outcome might be poor. This is a shot of the Stanford Intensive Care Unit um, in the late 70s, early 80s. We now have a newly re new ICU. And this is actually a 45-year-old man who developed a catastrophic injury to his lungs due to an infection. And he was on a mechanical ventilator for six weeks his mortality rate was around 65%, but he lived. And so this is an example of the good things that an intensive care unit can do. And that just shows uh, the gentleman looking out the window at Stanford, and you can see there's a big uh, volume ventilator, and lots of tubes are going into the veins in his neck and into his arteries, measuring pressures in his lung and in his heart. Um, so he's got lots of tubes and is being monitored carefully and is on extraordinary life support, is on life support. How was this life later on? Fine. It was fine? Yeah, went on to complete recovery. And this just makes the point that uh, the ICU is a place of uh, uh, great emotion. It's a place of uh, grief, sometimes happiness, a lot of stress. and. Um, and it's a very foreign environment, too. It's a foreign environment for families coming to visit people they love in intensive care units and seeing all the people dressed in strange outfits and all the noises and all the machinery. So it's, a, it's like a small excursion to a different land. Culturally very different. Here you see two very old patients. And 
now it's quite common to see patients in their 80s and 90s in the intensive care unit uh, with major surgery being conducted in patients in their 90s. Um, and this is one of the reasons that healthcare costs have uh, skyrocketed. That is that uh, the care for these patients is extremely expensive. And it's an interesting and tough societal and ethical question as to when do you stop delivering the most advanced high-tech care uh, to people. What I'd like to do is I'd like to talk about withholding and withdrawing life support. We're going to talk about the goals of the ICU healthcare team. Uh, we'll talk a bit about mortality rates in intensive care units in America. Then I'd like to give you a brief overview of the key biomedical ethical principles that we use in ethical decision making. Um, how do we make the decision to withhold or withdraw life support? What are some of the communication problems between physicians and patients and their families? and then advice to patients who are not in the ICU. So there really are two major goals of uh, physicians and nurses working together in intensive care units, which are very similar to the goals of physicians and healthcare providers in general. The first goal is to save the salvageable. So now we're talking about people who are really sick. Uh, and what does that mean? That means that you try to identify who you can save and you do everything in your power to save their life, to save the salvageable. And that's based on two age-old tenets of healthcare, which you can trace back uh, to Hippocrates and even be be before Hippocrates to the Egyptians, and they are to restore health and to relieve suffering. So, for example, if you walked up to a doctor and you said, what do you really do? The easiest answer to that question is, uh, I try to restore health and relieve suffering, because that's what medicine and healthcare is all about. What we do in an intensive care unit um, is we take someone who's critically ill, we stop them from dying, we put them on life support, and then we watch, and we try to keep them alive, but we watch to see whether or not they'll get better. Because we really don't have a lot of medications that make the body repair itself if it's been injured or hurt. So what you really do in an intensive care unit is you wait for the patient to heal and regain strength. And I call that respecting the wisdom of the body. And in fact, you could look at this as a, as a certain amount of spirituality too, uh, because mankind does not cannot do that much to patients who are critically ill to get them better. All we do is keep people alive to see if they can get better. Um, so the first goal is to save the salvageable, identify who we can save, and try to save them. The second goal is to help the dying have a peaceful and dignified death, because many patients who are admitted to intensive care units are admitted there to die. And death rates are very high in certain subpopulations. Uh, and there's no way to stop people from going along a pathway where they wind up in an intensive care unit, even though the odds are overwhelming they will die. Therefore, death is both an enemy and a colleague, because it's entirely appropriate for some people in the intensive care unit to die. Uh, in other words, to withdraw support, because they're clearly going to die, and all you're doing is prolonging their suffering and the dying process, which really goes against the basic tenets of the practice of medicine. Uh, number one, to save the salvage. Sure. There's one thing to, to salvage someone in an immediate critical event. Another thing is, to, I mean, an 85-year-old person who you know has had, had chronic congestive heart failure, has three months to live. Right. Do you consider that as part of their salvageability? You say, look, we can, we can get them over this event they just had. No, I, I think that that's a very tough question to answer easily. And uh, 
When I say save the salvageable, you make a judgment whether or not you can save someone and return them to reasonable quality of life. And you ha I think you have to take into consideration not only biologic existence, but quality of life. So it's an important question, um, and you need to look at both factors. Because it makes no sense to save someone's biologic existence when their quality of life is awful and negative, and they really wouldn't want to be alive. So again, these are wrestling with tough issues. Well, let me make an axiomatic statement that's an interesting statement, and that is that the longer a patient is in the ICU, the greater the chance for severe morbidity or death. So what that means is that if you're in an intensive care unit, it's a dangerous place to be. And in fact, you can die because you're in an intensive care unit. However, it's illogical because if you're dying and they don't put you in an intensive care unit, you're dead. So the bottom line to this is just to let you know that most people who go to intensive care units and die there die because they're in an ICU and they get infected in an ICU and die because of the infection. Don't you automatically go to ICU after surgery, though? Depends on what surgery. Many patients go to a post-anesthesia recovery room for several hours and then go to a regular bed. Some patients go to an intensive care unit, like patients who've had open-heart surgery or major vascular surgery, sometimes neurosurgery. No. Uh, if you look at, in America, there are 6,000 acute care hospitals with about 60,000 intensive care unit beds. Um, and each day in an ICU for a patient will cost anywhere from three to $8,000. It depends on the hospital its environment, and the, the level of care delivered. So the overall care for a critical care in America is probably around 60 or $70 billion a year, to give you an idea. And the total cost of health care in America, you all know, you've heard this number a lot, is a trillion dollars. A thousand billion dollars is the cost of health care in America. So ICU care is approaching 1% uh, of all, of all health care costs. Um, no, that's wrong. ICU care is approaching 10% uh, of all health care costs. So the, the, if you look at all comers who go to the intensive care unit, about 15 to 20% of patients die who are admitted to the intensive care unit in these 60,000 beds in America. Um, however, if you eliminate low death rate subpopulations of patients, uh, it's a different death rate. So for example, um, Post-operative patients, surgical patients, who go to the intensive care unit have a much lower death rate. Patients who've had open-heart surgery, uh, coronary artery bypass graft surgery, which we call cabbages, or open-heart surgery for a valve replacement, their average death rate is around 6%. We do about uh, 350,000 patients like that a year to a cost of around 4 or $5 billion. If you look at patients who have major vascular surgery, hundreds of thousands of patients who have their arteries repaired, their neck arteries and arteries in their abdomen or their legs, um, they also have a low death rate. If you look at patients who try to commit suicide, of which there are at least half a million Americans try to commit suicide every year, and of that group, a small percentage goes to the intensive care unit because they can no longer breathe because they took too much of the medication, their overdose, you know, for which they, which they took their overdose. And of that group, they also have a low death rate, about 5 or 6%. So if you eliminate the post-operative patients and the low death rate overdose patients, the true overall death rate becomes about a third. So that means about a third of all patients who are critically ill or injured who go to the intensive care unit die. <clears throat>
Then if you look at patients who can't breathe well because they've had an injury to their lungs or they've smoked cigarettes and have COPD, which is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, of which there are about 15 to 20 million Americans, or they developed ARDS, which is known as the Adult Respiratory Distress Syndrome, which is caused by many different things, but basically is, uh, for example, a severe infection, a lung injury, and the patient can't breathe, so they're placed on a breathing machine. If you, if you add respiratory failure, you can't breathe, and you have to go in a breathing machine, then the death rate is close to 50% of all patients. If you add together failure of one organ like the lungs with another organ like the kidneys or two to three other organ failure, the death rate immediately jumps to about 80 to 90%. And in fact, there was a nice article um, on cancers, lymphoma and leukemia, those are blood cancers, uh, showing that all patients with blood cancers who either couldn't maintain their blood pressure, that means you're in shock, or couldn't breathe, that means respiratory failure, uh, of that group, 80 to 90% died when they were admitted to the intensive care unit. So this article by Schuster and Marianne looked at 77 patients with hematologic, that means blood malignancies, cancer, admitted to the intensive care unit. Uh, the death rate was 80%, and four of the 52 ventilated patients, that means patients on breathing machines, left the hospital alive. Anybody who was on a breathing machine for more than five days died. So this gives you an example, which is very typical. Ventilator days on a breathing machine out to 50 days on the x-axis, the number of patients, and there were three groups. The, the uh, white squares, which are down here, were the group one patients. They were discharged from the ICU alive and left the hospital alive. The group two patients with the hatched blocks got out of the ICU alive, but died in the hospital following their stay in the intensive care unit, which is not uncommon. Uh, and the third group, the black squares, died in the intensive care unit. So you can see that of all these patients, of only four survived the hospital and no one after six days. And that's pretty common. Although you can't say then that if your, if your sister was in the hospital on the 30th day, it's still a very difficult decision to say, well, most patients die who are in this sort of dire straits, maybe we should stop life support. It's uh, obviously that's a very complicated decision where you have to weigh many factors. But in general, uh, long stays on breathing machines with cancer uh, mean the patient is probably gonna die. Well, there have been some big studies in America and internationally uh, trying to identify what factors you can depend upon uh, to prognosticate. That is to talk about what, what really are the death rates. And the thing that fell out in these uh, analyses is that the number of organ systems that were in failure or that were hurt is correlated to your survival rate. So for example, they took five major organ systems, the lungs, the heart, the brain, uh, the kidneys, and, and your blood. Those are five major systems. So if you look over here, if you, this is number of OSF organ system failures, one, two, three, or more. This is the day you're in the intensive care unit, the day of failure. And this is data from what is known as the Apache 2 study. And Apache stands for Acute Physiologic Assessment and Chronic Health Evaluation. It's been a lot of, there's also now new Apache 3 data. So what does this mean? That means if you have one of those five organs that's in failure or down, uh, by the fourth or fifth day in the ICU, your death rate is about 40%. If you have two of those organs down, 
Uh, by about the fifth day in the ICU, your death rate is around 60%. And if you have three or more organ systems down, by the fifth day, your death rate is close to 100%. Not 100%, but close to 100%. So how does this help uh, patients, families, and health professionals? It helps in trying to paint an accurate picture of the prognosis, what's going on. So if you have someone that you love in the intensive care unit, and they are on a breathing machine because their lungs have failed, they have heart failure because their heart doesn't work, and they have some kidney failure, so they have three organ system failure in an intensive care unit for three or four days, I know that their prognosis is grim. I know that you could, you know, what's the, there isn't much difference between 80 or 90% death rate, or 95% death rate. You're still in the same ballpark of a very bad prognosis, and so, you have to then factor that in in decision-making as to what to do. Now, a fascinating area uh, is to look at CPR, cardiopulmonary resuscitation. And I would presume, let me ask this question, I presume more than half of you have been trained in CPR. How many of you have been trained with CPR? You know, breathing. So everyone in the room has been trained in CPR. And the American Red Cross has really done a great job in making sure that Americans are trained in giving CPR. Now let me ask you another question. If I dropped in front of you right now with a real cardiac arrest, that means that I had either my heart stopped or it quivered, which we call, it doesn't pump, the pump is just quivering, it's called ventricular fibrillation. What is my death rate? I drop right here, you go to try to save me. It's a witness to arrest in the community. 50%. My death rate is uh, around 94%. Right. And, the, and most Americans don't know what the real death rates are because the American Red Cross has never really had told you the truth. And the truth is if you have a real asystolic arrest or a ventricular fibrillation cardiac arrest, it's a very grim prognostic sign. It's a big problem. Um, so we're clear. So yep. if you drop, you don't, there's no point. No. Well, you, no, no. <laughs> you have to ask the question. That's, that's good. You have to ask the question, you don't know why I dropped. So, for example, if I faint, if I faint, then you're going you're gonna to say, wow, we had a cardiac arrest and we saved him. But it was just a faint. <laughs> what you might do is break a rib and smack me around, but I was going to come around anyway. So a lot of people who, who go down in Safeway faint and then get pounced upon, and everybody is pretty anxious. They really can't feel a pulse because they don't know how to feel a pulse, and everybody's nervous. So it might count as a cardiac arrest. And then the ambulance paramedic people have a vested interest to show that they do great things. So the, the paramedic lobby wants to demonstrate that they can save lives. In 1983, there was a very nice study in, at Harvard at the Beth Israel Hospital in Boston where they looked at patients who had cardiopulmonary arrests and CPR. And they found out that the in-hospital death rate for cardiac arrest was 86%. That's in the hospital, not at Safeway. And that the at six months of the original whole group, 90% were dead. Uh, only 19% of the patients had discussed CPR with the doctor before it happened, which was really during 10, 12 years ago, that wasn't surprising. Only 32% of the families had, been dis had this issue discussed with them before their loved one had a cardiac arrest. But most of the physicians thought that they should have consulted the patient and family before this happened. And that's why in the last five years, there's been a lot of emphasis on discussing these issues before they happen, discussing with patients. Right. But that was before TPA, so wouldn't those numbers change dramatically now? No. No? No, it doesn't matter where you are when you have your cardiac arrest. 
If you, if you have a cardiac arrest because of a blocked coronary artery and I shoot in TPA, you're gone. Because the TPA is going to take, you know, to get the TPA, to get the syringe, to get the IV, yeah. you're already gone. Yeah. In 1988, there were eight studies were, were done and were combined looking at out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. This is the Safeway or at home or whatever. 1,400 patients, um, only 0.7% survived to be discharged in the hospital. 99.3% died. Just to give you an idea of the prognosis of having a real, this is a real cardiac arrest, not a faint. In 1989, four Boston healthcare institutions wanted to look at the uh, outcome of cardiac arrest in older patients. So they took patients who were seven years of age or older, 500. The death rate was 96%. These were patients who were in uh, both acute care hospitals and chronic care facilities. Of those patients who had out-of-hospital cardiac arrests, 99% died. Of those patients who had arrests in the hospital, in the hospital, uh, 93 to 94% died. Now you might ask the question, well, what happens if you have a cardiac arrest in the coronary care unit or the intensive care unit? This is a real ventricular fibrillation arrest or an asystolic arrest. The death rate is around 60 or 70%. That's in the middle of an intensive care unit where all the equipment's there, the monitoring is there, the nurses are there, the doctors are there, the electric paddles are there, the syringes, the lines are in. So it's a very bad prognostic sign to have a cardiac arrest. Uh, just to show you even in more recent studies, two large, this, it's interesting because, well, you should know. There were two large CPR studies done in 1992, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, trying to identify new modalities of treatment to save patients' lives who had cardiac arrests. They were doing things like big boluses of medicine down the, the windpipe and new tricky ways to do it. Nothing helped, 96% death rate in all the groups. So these are real numbers. There's no question these numbers are accurate. But why do they push knowing CPR on the chance that the person's not having cardiac arrest or why? I, I think that uh, the reason why they don't tell you these numbers is you'd have to say, why would I want to learn this? And I think the advantage of it is, is for those people who really didn't have an arrest, but might be close to an arrest. So for example, let's say that I gagged in some food, I went down, and I'm deteriorating toward having a cardiac arrest, but I haven't had it yet. And you get the food out, and I look really bad, and so you blow in my mouth and get some air going and knock me around, you, you might save my life. So I think, I think that you can save lives, but if you have a real cardiac arrest and drop, probably you're going to be uh, not successful. Now, another disease process, which is, this disease process, is, which is a, obviously a catastrophe, AIDS, which is an international catastrophe with um, easily 30 million people afflicted, uh, almost all of whom will die, and is ravaging, is ravaging Africa. Um, in 1988, when a young man usually uh, with AIDS and pneumocystis pneumonia, uh, was in respiratory failure and couldn't breathe, and was placed on a breathing machine in an intensive care unit, uh, almost all died. Very few were saved. And uh, at San Francisco General Hospital, which is a center for AIDS care in the nation, and Stanford, of course, is an AIDS research center, and we take care of AIDS patients too, but not to the extent of San Francisco and Los Angeles and New York. 14% of patients were weaned, and the mean survive, that means they were weaned off the breathing machine so they could breathe on their own. And their uh, mean survival was 12 months. 
And an interesting phenomena occurred. And, and that was, and, and this, is, uh, this shows you the AIDS epidemic. So in 1981, there were some sporadic, bizarre cases of young men, um, many of whom were homosexual, who got these strange infectious diseases and died. We saw them at Stanford before AIDS was defining. Thought it was bizarre, but just didn't think much about it. And this graph represents the number of patients admitted to SF General Hospital from 81 to 85. And you can see that the uh, black diamonds keep going up. That also represents the number of patients who had respiratory failure, a similar curve would represent the number of patients who had infections in their lungs and couldn't breathe. And the dotted bars, which this is a histogram, represents the number of patients admitted to the intensive care unit at San Francisco General Hospital. And so you can see in 84, there were quite a few. And then all of a sudden in 84 to, 84 to 85, the number of mainly young men admitted to the intensive care unit fell off, even though the number of AIDS cases and the number of patients with respiratory failure was increasing. So the question was, why was that happening? Because that was illogical. And that was studied. And the reason why that was happening was because the doctors were beginning to realize that most of these young men were tortured in the intensive care unit for several weeks and almost all died, like 85 to 90 percent died. And so then when they talked to the AIDS patients, they said, well, you know, you're getting worse, do you want to go to the intensive care unit? Our experience is the almost everyone dies, it's really an awful stay, you're dying anyway, you might live for six months or a year if you could be saved, but only 10% or 15% are, so that the patients decided not to go to the intensive care unit. And that's not a good place to die. It's not, a, it's a, not an easy death. It's a hard death on you and on the people that love you. Um, so, and there was also more effective patient counseling and increased support services. And that's, the AIDS epidemic has had a tremendous impact on um, ethical thinking in American healthcare. Because so many young people have died in the country and so many young people are afflicted that uh, doctors have to deal with this much more commonly and think about it and learn how to speak with people and give people choices. So it's had a big impact. Hippocrates said, uh, I will use treatment to help the sick according to my ability and judgment, but I will never use it to injure or wrong them. One of the greatest things that he said, he said many very bad things, uh, so that the O's that physicians take today are modified significantly from what Hippocrates first said. But Hippocrates uh, talked about doctors protecting other doctors, and there was really no room for women. And, you know, it's a very, so it, it was, it was typical for the times, but it really is anachronistic today. And over the last uh, thousands of years, and especially the last several hundred years, there have been many great philosophers who have thought about ethical decision-making in medicine and written treatises. And uh, you can look at Descartes or uh, Hume. You can uh, read about deontologic theory, utilitarian theory, and basically, it was so complex and so away from the practice of medicine because most physicians are very poorly trained in the humanities and the social sciences, so that if I wanted to discuss an ethical issue in 1970, I would have to invite a political scientist, a philosopher, a historian, an economist, a theologian, and then you'd bring the doctors in and everyone would start quoting Descartes and Plato and Socrates and Galen and the uh, the physicians 
couldn't bring much away from that discussion because the philosophers could quote everybody and be very erudite, but there was nothing really to help organize the thinking of the health professionals who were not schooled that well in those disciplines when they went to university, when they went to school. So then a group of physicians and philosophers got together and developed what I describe as the cliff notes of biomedical ethics. So they developed a way to think about ethical issues in medicine without having to quote um, any of the great philosophers. And so this is what we use in medicine to try to um, understand ethical issues. So the first principle, there are four principles. The first major principle is beneficence, which means what we try to do in medicine is help the patient. It's very straightforward, to be beneficent to help the patient. The second principle is non-maleficence. This is a more complicated one. This means first do no harm, prune non no ser. This is an old concept in the practice of medicine. And what does this, now this doesn't communicate to doctors very well. First do no harm. If I heard that for the first time, I'd say, well, I don't hurt anybody. I try not to hurt anybody. I try to help all my patients. What does this mean? But what it really means is that, uh, for example, if you come to see me and you have a cold, so I tell you, you've got a viral cold, you don't need an antibiotic. And you go, well, I've always taken antibiotics and I want an antibiotic. And I say, well, I know it won't help you. Well, I think it helps me. So I prescribe tetracycline and you go home and you're one of the one in 150,000 patients who gets uh, an acute allergic reaction in your skin and your skin starts to fall off and you get something that looks like a third degree burn and you die. And that happens every year. Several people in America die from just taking tetracycline. So what happened in that interaction? In that interaction, I knew you shouldn't take the medicine. You convinced me. Well, you bullied me and it was just too complicated and I have to see another patient. So I gave you the tetracycline. So I really violated that principle of first do no harm. So a physician has an ethical responsibility not to do something to the patient that can hurt the patient unless the odds are that it will be of more benefit than harm to the patient. So it's a wane of burdens and benefits, of good things and bad things to the patient. This is a very commonly violated principle in the, in the practice of American medicine. The third principle is autonomy, and that's uh, very American. Uh, Americans really prize their independence and their autonomy, and w that's why we have a healthcare system which is different than every industrialized nation in the world that has some sort of healthcare system which treats all their patients because we're so independent and we don't like things like that. We have a dysfunctional healthcare system that doesn't treat at least 50 million Americans in any effective way, and it's very poorly organized. What does autonomy mean on our level, on the level of uh, each one of us? Well, let me give you an example. Let's say I got Hodgkin's disease, which is an eminently treatable cancer, uh, which Stanford did a lot of the pioneering work in, and now is about 80% curable to 90% curable. I get Hodgkin's disease, and I go to see my friends who are doctors, and they say, well, Tom, if you have chemotherapy and radiotherapy, we can save your life. And I say, well, I think I'm going to go to the Sierras, backpacking in the Sierras, and I don't want your medicine. I don't want American therapy, and I'll pray to my own God. Now, I have the right to do that. I have the legal right to do that as an American citizen. Uh, so that is a representation of my autonomy as an American citizen, that I have the right to choose what I want. Now, there are certain areas where that isn't true in America. For example, if you're in the armed services, especially in a time of war, and you're injured, you have no rights as a soldier 
to say what you want or do not want. The military runs your health care when you're in the armed services. A lot of people don't know that when they join the military, but you lose your autonomy in health care decision making in the United States military. Many other countries, uh, in many other countries, patients do not have this right of autonomy to decide what they want or what they do not want. That's right. So the, the, there is a conflict. There is a conflict. And the physician is obligated to do what is medically right. So, for example, if you come in to see me and you say, I think I would like my gallbladder taken out. And I go, why is that? And you tell me why. I do a few blood tests. And I say, well, I don't think your gallbladder needs to come out. But you say, well, I've got, I know it needs to come out and I want it out. Then I have an obligation to tell you I'm not going to do it and I will not support it because I think it is not medically indicated. So you have your autonomy, and then I have my medical obligation to do what is right. And that will conflict very often. In fact, that conflicts all the time in the intensive care unit now. If a family wants me to keep their loved one alive, and I believe their loved one has no chance to survive and will definitely die, but I can keep them alive on all these machines, but the family does not want me to stop, we have a conflict. But I'm boxed in, because if I withdraw support against the wishes of the family, there is no legal precedent right now in the United States to support that. And in general, the courts wouldn't support that. However, in the area of CPR, there are now precedents where, for example, if someone you loved was in the hospital and I said, I want to let you know that we really shouldn't do CPR. It's got a very high death rate if your loved one has a cardiac arrest and that if we do CPR, it's not going to help, it's assaultive, it's, uh, I think it robs people of their dignity, and so I don't think we should do that. And then you say, well, I think we should do it because I want to do everything to save the person that I love and we're going to do it. And I, I might say, well, I'm not going to do it and I'm going to write an order, an order in the chart which says do not resuscitate, it's called a DNR order. In a number of hospitals now, there are medical policies that say that a physician can write a DNR order against the wishes of the family, even though the family wants it. Now, to, if you think about this for a second, think how complicated it is in working in a multicultural environment. This room, there's not a lot of multiculturalism in this room, okay? But if, you, if you've got a, uh, a family, an African-American family that's untrusting and angry, and you try to explain to them it's time to stop and they don't want to stop, or if a family, an Islamic family, takes out the Koran and slams it in the table and says that God is the only one with someone who's clearly going to die and has no chance to survive, then you have a real conflict. And you can't overcome that conflict very easily. It's very tough. Well, it looks like we're headed to the point where the cost is going to determine a lot of this, isn't it? Well, that's... Well, that's uh, you got a family who insists on Well, I think the I think the question is, uh, what are the odds the person can live, and if the and at but what point at what point can you say yeah. uh, that you're going to stop? The the best way to get some insight into that is that most of us probably have children or nieces or nephews, mm -hmm. and if I told you that your child was in the hospital critically ill, 
and the chances are two out of a hundred that he or she will live, your response I already know. It's fight like hell or we'll kill you. It's fight and let's try to save their lives. And so when you talk about numbers like that, they, they aren't very helpful. If you've got someone that you love in a setting like this and there might only be one chance in a hundred they can live, you're going to want to fight. So these are not easy dilemmas. I mean, it's easy if you're a health policy person not dealing with individual human beings to say, well, if it's a 97% chance, we'll try to save them. If it's 98% chance they'll die, we'll let them die. That might be easy for you on a piece of paper with a pencil, but it will not be easy for you if you're in the room with the family. So these are they're thorny issues. The final principle is justice, and that is that you treat patients equally. Um, of course, we don't have that in America. We don't have a just healthcare system because, again, 43 million. Uh, these are not the, the poor. The poor have Medicaid, which, and the poor get worse healthcare because the poor die younger and all the diseases they get, they get them worse. They're diagnosed late. They die younger. They don't get as good care, even though it's sort of available, although the government's trying to cut back payment for the care of the poor at the same time. And then you have an additional 43 million people who are working who can't afford health insurance. So that's an unsolved problem. These principles, though, these four principles, beneficence, do good, non-maleficence, do no harm, autonomy, respect the autonomy of the patient, and justice come into conflict. So you can't, for example, if you present an uh, ethical dilemma, I can't solve it by saying, ah, the four principles, well, this is the solution. That's not true. Because I can get two people debating pro-abortion and two people debating against abortion with those four principles. In the same way you can say, uh, preventing infection in persons unknowingly exposed to HIV may conflict with respecting autonomy of infected persons and the confidentiality of their tests. So, you know, you can, I can raise many tough ethical issues in medicine, biology, healthcare, where, these, uh, where they will conflict. Now, something that I try to teach doctors that I think is very important is physician virtues. That is that physicians need to possess certain virtues if they're going to do a good job in taking care of patients. These are virtues of benevolence, uh, compassion, truth-telling is vital, truthfulness, trustworthiness, respect for persons, justice, piety, hope, prudence. Physicians need to manifest these virtues when caring for patients. And one of the problems that I see in American healthcare is that physicians don't show these virtues enough so that patients are often alienated from the physicians that they see. Let me give you some examples of interesting recent studies. This is a 1993 study. This is an ethnographic study. This is where you sort of have Margaret Mead coming into the environment and watching what happens. And I'm a strong advocate of these types of studies. These are called qualitative studies. When you do surveys or you follow numbers and you crunch the numbers, those are called quantitative studies. And a lot of what we really want to learn will only be through observational qualitative studies, like studying a primitive tribe or whatever. We need to study what happens in medicine. This was a very interesting qualitative study where uh, young physicians were given a script to read to families, or a young physician were given a script about how to, what to tell families in terms of having a do not resuscitate order. So they were going to come and talk to the families about DNR orders. 
Um, and they did it. And the, the observers, most of whom were social scientists, watched them. They just stood in the corner. And the doctors would talk to the families about their relatives who were very sick, and they should write a do not resuscitate order. That means no CPR. And what they, the conclusion they came to was that they did a perfect job stating in English what the issues were and telling the family, but that there was no human interaction between the doctors and the family. And that's what's wrong in a lot of healthcare today, that what's lacking is the humanity in the interaction. Nurses have that humanity much more than MDs do. They want to care and they want to relate. Physicians have been trained and are culturally, uh, have culturally developed so that oftentimes they have great difficulty in relating to families and to patients. So do you think that if uh, a doctor or a nurse were able to tell the family in the right frame of reference, really relating to them everything, that then that family would say, okay, even though there's only two and a hundred percent chance, we won't go ahead. I think that the... It will make this, that's not my goal. My goal is for, the, is for it to be an effective interaction. I think that it'll be a... Well, I don't... Uh, that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is to be able to relate effectively to patients and families in a warm and sensitive fashion using language that's easily understood. Uh, and I think that that's a very important goal. And some of that's been lost in the last decade or two. Yeah, I'm sure all of you have been to physicians who have not related to you very well right. and are very sort of sometimes automated. Yeah, sometimes don't you think that almost is a personality of the doctor? It is. It would be very hard to overcome. It would really, really be difficult. I, I, used to be I think that for a lot of doctors, for some doctors it is a personality, mm -hmm. but they can still be trained, and I think the problem is that they are not trained and that it is not a priority in medical schools, and that their professors are not good models for this. And so the problem is that in the culture, the culture hasn't emphasized it. So the, the culture of physicians and of deliverers. So I think it could be a lot better. And then I think that the interactions would be more effective. For example, in medical malpractice, of which there are hundreds of thousands of cases, it's a, about a $15 billion industry in America. The most common cause of a medical malpractice suit is a poor relationship between the physician and the patient or family. It is not negligence, obvious negligence. It's a poor relationship causing the family or patient to get angry. Um, this just shows you in bioethics, biomedical ethics, that the literature, these are numbers of articles published. You can see in bioethics, and in life-sustaining issues, there's been a marked increase from the 60s and 70s up into the 90s of interest and numbers of papers published in the medical literature. Um, well, what about withdrawing life support? Well, it's not a large problem with brain death. Uh, when patients are brain dead, they are dead, even though some institutions have trouble still with families, trying to make them understand that their, their loved one is dead. But in America, when you're brain dead, you're dead. But the majority of patients in the ICU are not brain dead. Very few are brain dead. They're just catastrophically injured with a very low chance of surviving. So really it's a function of trying to predict in good faith what the chance of survival is. Um, let me explain to you how I would try to tell you that your brother or sister, uh, that it's time to withdraw support from your brother or sister. Let's say your brother or sister was in a terrible crash about uh, six or seven weeks ago. 
went to the intensive care unit, developed respiratory failure because the lungs were injured in the automobile crash, then five to seven days later got infected in the intensive care unit, the leading cause of death in the intensive care unit is to be infected by the resistant bugs that live there that go down into your veins from the plastic tubes that go in there and go down the tube into your lungs that helps you breathe. So that's the leading cause of death. And he got infected, which injured his lungs worse than that, hurt his kidneys. He had a cardiac arrest, which hurt his head. So in looking at things, he's not brain dead. Uh, he or she is not brain dead, but it looks like the odds are very grim that she'll survive. So I've talked to you about this and we've got a good rapport, so now I want to tell you that I think it's time to quit, because that's my role. I mean, that's my obligation. So I tell you that I believe that your uh, sister has, in essence, no chance to regain a reasonable quality of life, and therefore we should withdraw life support, which means that your sister will probably die. So I've told you then, what I did was I hedged it. I said, I believe your sister has, in essence, or almost no chance, unless I believe there's no chance to regain a reasonable quality of life. So what I'm really doing is I'm giving you my judgment that it's time to stop. And that's what you pay me for. You pay me for my knowledge and judgment. And let me tell you something, judgment is much more important than knowledge. For example, if you want a good lawyer, you don't necessarily want the one who can quote every case in the books. You want one who's got judgment. When you go to a good businessman, you want one with judgment. It's not necessarily what the person knows, it's how the person thinks. And that's what you're looking for with a physician, judgment. And so I've said it's time to stop. So really it's a clinical judgment. And you have to weigh the person's expected quality of life, where they're coming from and where they're going. If someone has been terribly ill and had a terrible quality of life and then becomes critically ill and goes in life support and the prognosis is grim, the best we can do is return them to a terrible quality of life. So that doesn't make a lot of sense to keep struggling in situations like that. So the physician makes a judgment, tries to understand what the quality of life was for the patient by talking to family. Then the team makes a judgment. You must include nurses in this because nurses are the ones who deliver the critical care. The nurses are the ones who hold the hand of the patient they're there 12, 8 to 12 hours a day. They change the soiled sheets. The physicians run in and out, don't really relate that much to the patients, don't talk that much to the families. The nurses talk much more to the families. So the nurses have a unique perspective and got to be involved in making the decision. Then you go to the patient, and about 70 to 80% of all patients in the intensive care unit on breathing machines are legally, are legally incompetent. They're incapacitated because they're on morphine and other drugs. They're delirious, and they really can't help that much. So you go to the family, and almost any family, when you tell a family, I believe that your son has, in essence, no chance to regain a reasonable quality of life, and therefore I believe that life support should be withdrawn, that's a tremendous shock to the son and, and, uh, or to the family, and there's usually conflict. They don't know what to do. So the three keys in decision-making are... Number one, when you're taking care of patients, you should talk about these things before they're sick or when they're chronically ill. Do you want to have cardiopulmonary resuscitation when it really doesn't do very much good? Do you want to go to the intensive care unit? If you do, what happens if we work hard for three days and we think you're going to die? Should, should we stop or do you want us to continue maintaining your existence on, on life support? What are your feelings about this? And more and more today, people are talking about that. Um, if a patient's incompetent and you work with a family, you should try to get unanimity among the family members. Oftentimes there are intra-family conflicts 
especially children that haven't seen their mom or dad for 10 years and feel guilty and come back. And even though mom or dad should die, the kids can't handle it because they feel so guilty and they demand that life support not be withdrawn. Very common. You don't have to have anything, but it's a lot easier to try to get unanimity. You don't have to, but you should strive for it. No, there's no legal requirement for that. But the doctor has a liability then. There is a liability. The doctor can, you know, the, uh, the fam part of the family could go to an assistant district attorney or the family could uh, put in a, a, a civil suit. So there is always liability. And so the best thing to do is to try to get unanimity. And then if things are complicated, like a conflict in the family, key number three is to get non-medical expertise. That is to get a facilitator, like a, a theologian, a religious person who's experienced, a uh, minister, a priest, a rabbi, um, a monk, uh, whatever, uh, to come in and try to help. Sometimes social workers are helpful. Usually you shouldn't call a doctor or a nurse because they really have a conflict of interest. You want to get someone who can be an advocate for the patient. Well, why are there problems with communication? Well, one reason is, I've said before, it's not emphasized in medical school, communication with other people. Uh, and people have different communication skills, what you said. But the majority of people are quite capable of being taught how to communicate with warmth and sensitivity. Don't you think there's a time element in this too that they say they don't have time? No. No, I don't believe that. Doesn't matter. There, well, you need one doctor. You need a boss doctor. No person should have only a bunch of doctors. Well, people who move a lot, they don't develop these relationships. Yes, but you, you don't develop the old-time relationship. But if people are open and sensitive, you can, you know, you've met people that you can rapidly establish a rapport with if they're open and honest and they're sharing people. And that's what needs to be taught, those skills. And those skills aren't taught. And they don't exist to the forefront in the culture. Um, each episode is stressful for physicians and nurses in situations like this. Many episodes are very stressful. That's why nurses burn out in the intensive care unit and doctors are burning out in the intensive care unit. It's very time consuming. And in our system, cognitive care is still not supported by the system. What does that mean? That means thinking and interrelating is not supported uh, as compared to doing something. Like for example, if, uh, if I sat down with a family in a waiting room and talked to them for an hour about what to do and help them and talk to them about guilt because you always should talk about guilt before someone dies because everybody feels guilty when someone they love dies. They could have done more and that's a normal human response to tragedy and to death. So you've talked to some, you've done a great job, you've orchestrated a good death and you get paid nothing for doing that. If I had gone out and I had taken a knife and cut the thigh of one of the people and sewed it up, $600. If I had taken a long black tube and shoved it in any orifice in the human body, $1,000. So the whole development of the healthcare system is based on doing things to people for money, but not really doing the most important thing, which is interrelating with people and decision making. That's much more important. What's happening to the elderly in America? Well, Sir William Osler, one of the great physicians from England and in America, and Osler was here in the uh, early 1900s and eight, late 1800s. He said, pneumonia is the friend of the aged because when you got old before 1940, you got pneumonia and you died because there were no antibiotics. Now, when you get old and you get pneumonia, there are a gazillion antibiotics and you don't die. And, and so this is a real problem, that you don't die naturally the way you would if you were in the wilds. There's a time 
when, when you should go. The cost of the system is enormous, and the underprivileged are going to have less and less access to care uh, in the future. And especially with the cuts that the Congress is making in Medicaid, I'm very fearful that uh, more and more doctors will not be able to care for the for the poor because there will be no remuneration, and they won't be able. The doctors won't be able to survive. We need support and direction. How much law will help? Well, you know there are, there are cases heard several times per year dealing with these very tough ethical issues, some of which we've discussed. And um, what I usually tell lawyers, though, uh, and I tell physicians, is that I've never asked a lawyer to come into the intensive care unit to help me in one of these tough situations. And in fact, uh, when I've given talks to large groups of lawyers, I've told them that not only do I not allow lawyers to come in and consult in tough medical legal issues, but also when lawyers are critically ill, I don't admit them to the intensive care unit, which I've had a few go crazy over that. <laughs> and, pardon? Yes. No, I actually, I was at one big group with lawyers, and one of them jumped up and turned beet red and was about to pounce on me and thought I was telling the truth. <clears throat> We already talked about doctors independently making decisions about can you make a decision uh, in the healthcare system to say that it's futile to continue and we should stop support. And that's one of the, the big issues of the day. And I would say that's a very dangerous thing to allow physicians to do. For example, if the physicians are a, are, are a member of one of these managed care brokering outfits, which are very greedy right now, you know, they're stealing our money. The big for-profit managed care corporations are stealing 30% of the money that goes into them from, from Americans and corporations. They're pocketing about 6% 6 to 8% goes for administration, the rest to profit. So they're profiteering on billions of dollars, sort of like the savings and loan debacle. And it's not really going to be stopped, I don't think, for two or three years. But they're stealing all this money from us, not giving it to hospitals. Hospitals are going to go bankrupt. Doctors are going crazy right now, trying to restructure and reorganize health care. But people are, the greedy people are running these big companies and making out like bandits. So I think if you're in one of those companies, if you're a doctor in one of those big HMO outfits, uh, you might be pushed by the corporation to try to decide that there is futility here and let the patient die when there really might not be because they might fire you if you don't do that. And more and more doctors are being fired from their practices because they don't uh, do what the corporation wants them to do or they don't practice in the most economic fashion. So I think we're in a very dangerous time in the organization of healthcare in America right now where healthcare for the first time is now being run by third-party business people who are out to make giant profits like in the investment banking industry, et cetera. Would it be a good idea to go to a national bioethical decision-making where it, you know, it, it, it's just uh, everybody has looked at it overall and set a certain guidelines under all these <coughs> I don't think so. I'll tell you why. I think these are individual cases. Every person is different. Every, pro every scenario is different. And uh, what happens now in America is that there is lots of communication among all doctors and hospitals and nurses. And so there is rapid dissemination in, in journals and with talks about how people are thinking. 
And I don't think, I think that because of that, you establish norms of how people practice, just like you have standards for lawyers, business people, and there are standards for how physicians practice. So I think that you don't, I don't think that would be only, it would only be helpful if it was advisory. It would never be helpful as regulations, because every case is different. But I think that goes on informally anyway. And things have changed tremendously in the last five years and 10 years. Final point, advice to patients who are not in intensive care units. Uh, I think everybody should have a living will document. In the state of California, you can get a durable power attorney for health care. In many states, you can. And so you can identify someone you love that loves you as an attorney. In fact, if you're legally incompetent with a stroke, they make the decisions. Oh, absolutely, 100%. You can also get a, oh no, they stand up 100%. You can get a natural death act declaration, which means you write down what you want to happen to you. So I, might, I, I wrote in mine, if I have in essence no chance to regain a reasonable quality of life, uh, please withhold or withdraw life support. If I am a, in a chronic comatose state with little chance to, re, to regain wakefulness, do not feed me, let me die. So I think those are the key issues, and you can write it down on Natural Death Act declarations in many states which are living wills, which are legally valid in the particular state, or you can get a durable power of attorney for health care in the state uh, to appoint someone else to make your decisions. But remember, if you do that, a durable power of attorney for health care, you've got to let them know what you want. So you still have to write that down for them to let them know what you want. Because if you don't let them know what you want, they'll be paralyzed. They won't know what to do. It's too much responsibility. You should inform your doctor, your family, and friends what you want and facilitate communication if necessary. And that's it. <laughs>